you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 4. It's page 809 in your pew Bibles. Verses 12 through 25 is what we're going to look at. All throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He uses those, those terms interchangeably. He's talking about the same thing. But as kingdom parables, in our passage this morning, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, it's kind of his exhortation that kicks off his earth, earthly ministry. But he uses this phrase so many times that it seems that it would be very important that we understand what he's saying when he says it. We even use in our Christian vernacular, we say we want to see the God, kingdom of God expand in our homes or expand in our, in our communities or expand around the world. And we, write, we use that rightly, but what do we mean when we say the kingdom of God? We're starting this morning a series that specifically looks at some of these passages throughout Matthew. So it seemed obvious to me that we need to define our term before we go forward to see exactly what Jesus means in the different situations that he uses this. So over the next four weeks, we'll be looking at the kingdom of God, but we start here when Jesus uses it for the first time. John the Baptist has used it in chapter 3. But when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what in the world is he talking about? With that in mind, let me read for us, beginning in verse 12 and through the end of the chapter. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking on the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Casting a net into the sea, they were fish- for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. <coughs> Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there... He saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would meet with us this morning. Would you make your word real and to come alive in our hearts? We pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, you would pour that out upon us, and that we'd be glad in what we hear today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The idea of kings and kingdoms is very lost on American culture, isn't it? We don't have, we've never been ruled by a king, we don't set up a kingdom, uh, and that was by design, of course. The founders of our country didn't want us to have a king. They wanted a plurality of leadership. The Presbyterian Church does not want a king. They have a plurality of leadership. (coughs) So when we try to learn about kings and kingdoms, we can either A, study history, or we can look to the English monarch, which really doesn't help us a whole lot because... They're really just figureheads. It's not any kind of power and leadership that they have. Our exposure to a monarchy is looking, hey, what's the latest fashion worn by the beautiful Kate Middleton? What's the, 
what's the latest antic that Prince Harry has done? That's, we don't really get the king or the kingdom when we think about those such things. But it was the exact analogy that Jesus chose to use when he started to talk about the kingdom of God, this spiritual kingdom that was supposed to explode and go out into the world, a kingdom of God. He's, he wrote, or he lived, and, he, and, and Paul wrote in the time of an emperor, a Caesar, which was basically the same thing. This ultimate and complete authority. Whatever the king said, you had to do it. Everything that you owned was, basic, was still basically the king's. <clears throat> Anything you did was in subjection to the king. Anything you did wrong was in rebellion against the king. He was the ruler and the authority. His wish was your command. It's something that we don't really understand and get as Americans, and, and that's a good thing. But this is the context into which Jesus was preaching and teaching. <coughs> and as we turn to this passage this morning, Jesus is about to deliver his first and probably his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. But before he does, he delivers this exhortation in verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Excuse me. <coughs> takes a while for your voice to get used to preaching two services, and I just don't think mine's gotten used to it yet. At least that's my excuse. <clears throat> Jesus at this point has likely already performed miracles. He's done some sort of, of teaching. There's been a revelation of his ministry, but he says here, the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. It's, I'm inaugurating it right now. And so our ears are to perk up when he says something like that, because clearly something very interesting and important is going on. All throughout this gospel, Jesus will continually say something about the kingdom. And he begins here. <coughs> because Christ is the king of the kingdom, and we must follow the king wherever he's going. Follow him in our individual lives and follow him as a church body. But first, what is it? What is this kingdom of God? Is it a place that we can look out and there's boundary markers that we can see what it's defined by? No, it's not a kingdom like that. So what is it? <clears throat> Jesus is saying, the time is now for me to begin my ministry. He's been alive for 30 years to this point, but something changes here. He's proven himself a worthy adversary against Satan. All the temptations that Adam succumbed to, Jesus has not, did not succumb to in the temptations in the desert. He's showing that the conflict of this kingdom, it's a spiritual conflict. It's not a physical battlefield that, where we must fight. <coughs> this kingdom is something you've probably heard before. It is now and it's not yet. Okay? It's, it's being inaugurated, it's being begun, but it's not fully and completely realized like it will be one day. That's what Jesus is saying in the parable of the mustard seed. This little, tiny, unimpressive mustard seed is like the kingdom of God. But one day, once it's planted and grows, it's going to be this huge, imposing tree or shrub in the middle of the garden that not only is imposing to the rest of the garden, but it also blesses the rest of the garden. That's what this kingdom is like. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology book, says this about the kingdom of God. He says, The kingdom is primarily the dynamic reign or kingly rule of God, and derivatively, the sphere in which the rule is experienced. The kingdom is not identified with its subjects. They're, they are the people of God's rule who enter it, live under it, and are governed by it. The church is the community of the kingdom, but it's not the kingdom itself. Jesus' disciples belong to the kingdom as the kingdom belongs to them, but they are not the kingdom. The kingdom is the rule of God. In other words, wherever we see the will of King Jesus being done, that's where the kingdom is. 
wherever it's done, wherever part of the world, people are listening to and obeying the will of God's revealed will in Scripture, that's where we see the kingdom. That's why we pray in the petition in the Lord's Supper, Lord, uh, excuse me, in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is always done. His revealed will is always done in heaven. We want it to always be done on the earth. <coughs> and so that's what we're praying for. In the Old Testament, this kingdom of God was largely limited to Israel. Now it's expanding. Jesus, come, Jesus begins his ministry in Capernaum, which was strategic. He didn't start in Jerusalem. He started in a place that was densely populated by Jews and Gentiles to show what the makeup or the membership of this kingdom was to look like. Here are four things that are true about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is something that's dynamic and spiritual rather than static and physical. Again, there's no boundary markers to it, and it's always growing. The king, number two, the kingdom grows as the king is increasingly acknowledged, worshipped, and served. The more people that hear about Jesus, serve him, and do his will, the greater and bigger the kingdom becomes. Number three, the kingdom of God is found within the church, but it's not the church. We've already mentioned that. And number four, the church is the instrument in the hands of the king that he uses to grow his kingdom. He uses the individual church bodies to grow and expand the kingdom. It's why we plant churches. It's why we do evangelism. It's why we do outreach and mercy ministries, so that we would see the kingdom grow and expand in the world. <coughs> How is our church being used by the king? We might ask ourselves. When I was in middle school, I was on the chess team. Uh, I'll let you draw whatever conclusions you want to about me as a result of that. Uh, what can I say? It, it filled my passion bucket at that time. But every move that's made on a, chess, on a chess board is for a purpose. Okay? Whether you're offensively moving your pieces, your, your pawns, your bishops, your king, your queen, your rooks, so forth, whether you're doing that or whether you're playing defense, everything is with the king in mind. Everything you do, because of course the objective is to get a checkmate on the king. What is this move going to do for my king? How is my offensive move affecting his king or the person that you're playing? Yes, with every illustration about God or Christ, it does break down. Christ does not need our protection. He does not need us to do anything to shield him from anything. But I think the illustration applies here. Everything that you do, everything that we do as a church, how is this affecting the king? How is this honoring the king? How is this speaking of the king? Am I, what am I doing? Is, is it serving the will of the king? Is it in obedience to the king? We should think the same thing. How would you describe yourself? How would you describe your family? How would you describe our church? <clears throat> what is the kingdom of God? Simply put, wherever we see people obeying the rule of the king and his revealed will in scripture, that's where we see the kingdom of God. So it can be everywhere. And we would hope that it would continue to expand greater and greater and greater until Christ returns. Well, if that's what it is, how do I enter it? How do I, how do I become a part of that? Is it just as simple as obeying the orders of what the king says? Yes, but there's a starting point for all of that. And Jesus addresses that in verse 17. How do you enter the kingdom of God? You repent. You repent of your sin. If you want to enter it, if you want salvation, it must begin. It doesn't end there, but it begins with repentance. Jesus begins... His exhortation, uh, where any good gospel presentation begins. <laughs> You're a sinner, and you need to change your mind about your sin. I am God, I am the only one who needs to be served, and you need to change your mind about what you've once thought of me. You need to repent. You probably know the, the word repentance, although I think it bears repeating. It's to change your mind about something. 
You used to, think, used to be going in one direction with a certain purpose. Now you've changed that direction. You're going a different direction with a new purpose. We formerly thought that God maybe was just a figment of our imagination, or he was just made up to make people feel better about themselves. Well, then you need to change your mind about that because God is real, and he is the creator and sustainer of all things. We used to thought, think that our sin was just, it's just kind of a collection of bad habits or, or character flaws. You need to change your mind about your sin. It's rebellion against the king. We're guilty. We have sinned against a holy God. We're deserve, deservedly, uh, we deserve his wrath. No amount of being better is going to fix this problem. <clears throat> you know, we see this in our own lives. How many times have maybe you apologized to your spouse or a friend of yours, not because you were really sorry for what you've done, you just didn't want them to be mad at you anymore. I can't tell you how many times I have apologized to my wife, Lauren, not because I really felt like I had done something wrong. I just wanted the conflict to be over. I need to repent of that. I need to change my mind about that. How many times have you done something good for somebody? Not because you really cared about them, because you knew that praise and acclaim would follow for you. You're really doing all these things for yourself. We need to change. The sin is far more deeper into our hearts than we care to admit. It's, it's more sinister than we want to believe about ourselves. But we need to change our mind about that. Not just our minds, but that it will be reflected in a new behavior. The beginning of all this is repentance. It's what John the Baptist taught. It's what Jesus teaches. It was the crux of the message that Jonah was teaching to the Ninevites. Repent. And this repentance lies at the entry point between you and the kingdom of God. Are you going to repent of your sins? <clears throat> Kevin DeYoung, you've probably heard of him. Perhaps he's a minister in the PCA, writes uh, all sorts of books and speaks. He wrote an article recently on repentance, and I want to read it to you. It is a little bit long. I will warn you in advance, but it, it's, it's very good, I think. I hope it will be of benefit to us. He begins, Repentance has always been hard, and it will always be hard. Regret, on the other hand, now that's easy. Suppose you walk in one day furious for no good reason. You walk into work one day furious for no good reason. You get paid well and you're treated nicely, but you feel like your supervisor has been unfair to you. <clears throat> you should have gotten the promotion even though you were less qualified and less experienced than the one who got it. Nevertheless, you march into the office of your supervisor and you let him have it. You tell him exactly what you think about him, what you think about his wife, his grandmother, and his dog. Later that night, you feel sick about this, now that you've been fired. How could you have been so stupid to say all of those things? You're out of work? That's regret. You don't have to see your sin or even admit that you're wrong and be humbled to feel regret. You just have to feel bad about the consequences of your actions. It's easy to have regret, but that's not repentance. Embarrassment is also easy. Suppose you're out in the lobby after church and a group of you are chatting about her. No one has talked to her, but you're all talking about her. What's wrong in her marriage? What's wrong with her kids? And what's wrong with her house? You aren't strategizing how to help her. You're just talking about her. And then you realize she's been looking for her coat right behind you the whole time, and she's heard the whole thing. And as she bolts out of the church crying, you feel terrible. You are so embarrassed. Now, it may be that you're really struck in your conscience and you're moved to ask for forgiveness, but it could be that you're just embarrassed at being caught. You feel terrible, not so much with having gossiped, but that she heard you gossiping. You wonder what she thinks of you now and that if she'll tell others about this incident. Sure, you feel terrible, but it's out of a love for your reputation, not out of a hatred for your sin. You are embarrassed, but that's not repentance. Apology is not necessarily repentance either. 
To be sure, repentance often involves apology, but just because you've issued an apology does not mean you've repented. We've all heard pseudo-apologies. I'm so sorry that you're offended by this. I'm sorry that you took things the wrong way. I'm sorry that of what I said about your kids, but let's be honest, they're unruly and undisciplined. I'm sorry that you're so sensitive to everything that's said. Or maybe the apology is sincere. It may not be a sincere statement of repentance. It may just be a sincere statement of feeling remorse or shame. Regret is easy, embarrassment is easy, and apology is easy. Repentance, on the other hand, is very hard and therefore much rarer. Repentance involves two things, a change of mind and then therefore a change of behavior. Repentance means you change your mind first about yourself. I'm not basically a good person. I'm not fundamentally good deep down. That's not true of me. I'm not the center of the universe. I'm not the king of the world, much less my own life. You must change your mind about your sin. I am responsible for my actions. Yes, I have past hurts, but they do not excuse my present failings. My offenses are against God, and they are not trivial. And then you change your mind about God himself. He is trustworthy. He is sure. He is able to forgive. I believe in Jesus Christ who saves me from my sins. Repentance is hard because changing your mind is hard. In fact, when we're dealing with spiritual matters of the heart, God's the only one who can change your mind. People are simply just not predisposed to say, I was wrong, I was wrong about myself, I was wrong about God. The whole time I've been wrong. I want to change. But that's repentance. It's very rare, but it's amazing when it happens. So he says in closing, if we preach a gospel with no repentance, then we're preaching something completely different than the biblical gospel. If we knowingly allow unconcerned and impenitent sinners into the membership and ministry of the church, we're deceiving their souls and we're putting ourselves at risk. There are few things more important in life than repentance, so important that the Bible makes it clear that you cannot go to heaven without it. Jesus says this as a matter-of-factly as he can. Do you want to enter the kingdom of God? That's good. Step one, repent of your sin. See yourself as a sinner and change your mind about what you have always thought about your sin and yourself, for it's how you enter the kingdom of God. Have you ever truly repented of your sin? Not, are you now perfect, and, you, and you've never done anything wrong as a result of that, because continually we're having re- to repent of our sins. But initially, unto salvation, have you done that? Because it's how we enter the kingdom of God. But it's not the ending of the journey. It's the very beginning of it. So where do we go from there? How now, once we have repented, how now do we live in the kingdom of God as members of it? Jesus now, in this final section, begins to call people to follow him. He calls Peter and Andrew, tells them he's going to make them fishers of men. And then James and John follow that. He's calling members into the kingdom from every tribe in the world. This message of the kingdom is what we just talked about, repenting of your sins, turning to Christ in faith. And in this last section, Jesus speaks to the mission of the kingdom of God. What's the purpose of it? Where is it moving? Where is it intending to go? Jesus is going to show with the coming of the kingdom, he's going to show us several things. He's he's calling followers to himself, but he's also rolling back the effects of sin. That's what he shows in his healing. The sin has not just affected our relationship with God or our relationships with one another. It's affected even our bodies. And Jesus is correct beginning to, in seed form, correct some of that by healing others. In this kingdom, followers are to fish for men. The battle that we fight is in the hearts and minds of people. 
not to belittle them, not to ridicule them, but to plead with them to believe in this gospel. And Jesus intends this message to carry on well past his life on this earth, that his disciples, and then even to us, that we would carry on the same message. Life in the kingdom, simply put, is lived following the king, following King Jesus. And this message is for everybody. What would, Je- what would following Jesus mean for them? What did, when he said, follow me, what would the disciples go and do? Well, it would be a life where, on many days, they didn't know where their very meal would come from. It would mean constant traveling. It would be preaching and ministering to people who wanted absolutely nothing to do with what they were saying or them personally. It would mean eventually their king would go to a cross and would die, certainly not the ending that they thought would happen, but then he would be raised again. Being a follower of the king means following him wherever he's going and doing whatever he asks and submitting to him as your authority. It means things are going to be very hard. It means you're going to have to make unpopular decisions. It means our view of morality and any number of things are going to be shocking to the world around us. But Jesus is calling us to follow him, whatever that means, and whatever the circumstances may call for. He's asking us to be citizens of a spiritual kingdom, almost quite literally citizens of a different dimension altogether, that makes absolutely no sense to the unbelieving world. And how could it? We have been given eyes to see and ears to hear a spiritual message that doesn't make sense to an unbelieving world. We're not better than anyone. We haven't figured it out when they haven't. We've been blessed with the Lord Jesus Christ who has shown us our sin and given us a taste, a taste of this great kingdom that's moving forward to eternity. And now we're called to follow the king. You see, Jesus doesn't use the language that we often use when we're talking about being a Christian or in the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, it's okay, Christian, just rest in what I've done for you. He doesn't say, just, just get comfortable with the fact that you're saved. That's what it means to be a Christian. He doesn't say, just invite me into your heart or just desire a personal relationship with me. No, being a Christian means follow me. It means go where I'm going. It means obey my revealed will. It's not that those other things are necessarily wrong, but they're incomplete. It means follow the king where the king is going and obey every word that he tells you. See, Christians of all people should be progressives. No, not in the way that the political term has been co-opted. I mean, forward-moving, advancing, progressing this gospel, not changing it in any way. We don't preach a different theological message to the world, but our methods have got to be constantly changing. How do I make this clear to this group of people? How does make and understand a bit better about why we are here as a church and how we love them with the love of Jesus Christ? We've just kind of always done it this way. It's just not going to work in this forward, progressing movement of the kingdom of God. It means we're following him wherever he goes. And it's not just for the advanced Christians, or it's not just a side item to, to being a Christian. That's what it means. It means following him. Whatever you are, you're a teacher, you're a banker, you're a businessman, you're a pastor. How are you helping to advance this kingdom where you are? As parents, we are making kingdom disciples in our home every single day. (laughs) This kingdom is not static. It's not rigid. It's not a place of comfort. It's calling us out of our comfort, but it's keeping us on mission as it does. And as chapter 5 begins in just a few verses, Jesus is going to go up on a mountain and he's going to sit down and he's going to look out to this mass of people and he's going to begin to teach them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God.
blessed are you over here, and blessed are you, and he's going to give this kingdom morality, these three chapters of this is what it means to live now as a Christian in this world. And this is what it looks like, and this is what I'm asking of you, Jesus will say. In the weeks leading up to the D-Day invasion of Normandy on June the 6th of 1944, Prime Minister Winston Churchill had determined that he was going to stand on a battleship in the English Channel to watch this invasion. He had let Dwight Eisenhower, the U.S. general, know of these plans. Eisenhower didn't like this one bit. He did not want the prime minister to put himself in harm's way like this, and so he strongly advised Churchill to not do this, but to no avail. Eisenhower did not let this issue go, and so he went above Churchill's head into the king, King George VI. King, have you heard what Churchill... Sure, he didn't say it that way, but you get the point. King, have you heard what Churchill's going to do? He's going to stand on the battleship of the English Channel. I don't think this is a good idea, and the king agreed. And so King George VI told Winston Churchill, I'm going to stand with you on the battleship and watch the Normandy invasion. Churchill quickly realized what the king was doing. He would never have imagined to put the king in harm's way, and so he backed off his plans to stand on the deck of the battleship. He did not do it because the king had insisted on standing with him. Our king did the exact opposite. King Jesus put himself in harm's way intentionally for you and me. He did it for us. He went to the cross for us. We needed to repent. The only way we were going to realize that we needed to repent is if he went and saved us from our sins while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what he did. This table reminds us of what he did. He lived perfectly for you and then died the death that you had to, live, that you had to die. But he chose to do it for you and in your place. He shed the blood that was supposed to be your blood, but your blood wouldn't have done anything. His blood could. It cleanses us. It makes us perfect and righteous and spotless. Your king does stand way far out there, and he can tell you whatever he wants you to do, but he also has come near to you. He's taken your place. If we have a king and a savior like that, then he can ask anything of us. He can ask you to do anything, because look what he's done for you. Maybe you sense a stirring in yourself this morning that he's calling you to the mission field. Then you need to go. If the king's calling you to do this, then you need to go. And you don't need to hold back. If he's calling you to foster and adopt a child, I think he's calling you, then you need to do it. If the king's asking this of you, you need to follow him and you need to obey him. Maybe he's calling you to get involved in a new ministry or share your faith, share the love of Christ with your neighbor. Then you need to do it today. You don't need to delay Because the king's asking this of you, and he can ask you whatever he wants because he went to the cross for you. He loves you greatly. How is the will of the king being done in your home? How is it being done in your heart? How is it being done in your Sunday school class? How is it being done in this church? That we would all pray that the will of the king would be done everywhere we are. It would grow in great measure in this city. And it would be all for him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this this great word from you this morning that we would repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Lord, we rejoice that you have have brought that kingdom to this earth. More importantly, Lord, that you have died on the cross for us. That makes all this possible, all this ministry possible for your glory. Would you be with us now as we come to the Lord's table and you would give us great grace and nourishment through it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.